I worry uh, I'm not going to have anything funny without Ben here. <laughs> Whoa, what's that supposed to mean? I thought I was a comedy relief. Oh, you're the, you're the comedy relief? Okay. This is the Space Dojo Show, a weekly podcast about all things JavaScript. You can find out more information at show.spacedojo.com. Enjoy the show. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your Meteor application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. I host Crater.io there, so I understand DigitalOcean. Start with a pre-configured one-click launch, such as Node.js, to get it up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSD and state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean is the fastest growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Use the promo code CRATER10 on the billing page when you sign up for $10 to get started. Welcome to the Space Dojo Show. I'm your host, Josh Owens, along with my co host today, Ramsey. Welcome, Ramsey. Hey, what's up, Josh? And uh, a special guest co-host taking uh, Ben's place, Abby. Welcome, Abby. Hey, guys. How you doing? And our guest today is Dan Abramoff. Did I say that right? I, I totally Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. Really glad you could make it today. I've been uh, wanting to have you on the show for a while. Uh, just been kind of following what you're, what you're doing. You wrote... Redux, which is a popular implementation of the Flux pattern that Facebook put out. Is that right? Yep. Can you talk a little bit about Redux? Yeah, sure. So I actually did not intend it to be a library, like uh, a real library. So I was preparing for a talk um, last year uh, at React Europe called uh, How to Loading with Time Travel. This is a, like my pet project that I've always been interested in the interactive um, development experience and being able to write code and press save and seeing the results uh, right in the browser immediately, uh, like in Brit Victor videos. And so I was working on this pet project called React Loader, which is a tool that implements this kind of workflow for React components where you just edit them and see the changes immediately. And I wanted to make a talk about this, but I figured that like a lot of time I spend uh, tweaking the UI, but I also tweak uh, the logic uh, a lot of time. And the problem is that these kind of changes are really hard to have the same experience uh, with. So I was looking at how can we have the same kind of developer experience, but with, with the logic. And I was using Flux quite heavily in the last talk I was working on because uh, it was a pretty complicated single-page app uh, with lots of client-side object uh, logic, lots of like optimistic mutations, and you know being able to edit something locally and then just reflect it remotely. I was working uh, on the logic a lot, and Redux is kind of like just my attempt to simplify the Flux pattern, the parts that I didn't like about it, to make it more composable because I often wanted to extract some parts of the logic and reuse them several times, but it's kind of hard with flux source. But if everything is a function, it's actually pretty easy because you have high order functions, functions returning functions, and so on. So uh, 
this is like my attempt at doing this. And I also had a ton of input from Andrew Clark, uh, who is uh, a co-author of Redux, and he he helped me shape it before the talk. And so I gave this talk <laughs> where this Redux library was just like a helper to make the talk possible. But it grew very popular since then. And I, uh, I raised some money on Patreon to work on the documentation and examples. So I've been working just on that for three months. And then I joined Facebook. So I, I don't work on Redux as much anymore. But on the other hand, I don't really plan any big changes. It's pretty stable. That's kind of awesome. I bet, you know, when you wrote that, you had no idea that Facebook would reach out to you and want to hire you, huh? We we kind of talked uh, a little with Facebook before Redux, actually, because I was kind of visible in the React ecosystem, and I wanted to uh, land the job there to work in React, but they didn't have any openings in uh, UK, and I, could, I can't get to US because of the visa, mm-hmm. and I also don't want to live in the US very much, so... Being hired in London, it's like the best. <laughs> I'm very grateful that this happened. I think Facebook does go after people who like make strides in the community, right? Like Sebastian McKenzie with Babel. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Um, do you think that the types of problems you're solving now are a lot easier because you went through the whole Redux journey that you've been on? Are they a different class of problems now? Or? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on the React team now, so... I kind of know React as a user. I don't know it as well as like the internals. And it definitely helps to have some experience with open source, like with maintaining a really popular library, just because, you know, all the boring stuff, like how to cut releases, how to kind of test things, uh, how to interact with the community, how to manage issues and this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it definitely helps. It definitely gave me a bigger perspective and also Redux is one of the ways to manage state in your React or Angular or whatever application but there are also other alternative ways that are vastly different like Mobax for example so it's based on the opposite principle where uh, everything is mutable but the dependencies attract so uh, only uh, on the things that need to re-render re-render so it helps to kind of have perspective on uh, a deep perspective on one side uh, of how things can be done because you know both the upsides and the downsides of that and you can evaluate other solutions with a cleaner mind, I'd say. So what's, uh, what's stopping Facebook from uh, just saying, hey, all of our Facebook uh, apps are starting to use Redux or like, which I'm sure a lot are, right? But yet there's still a flux page in the Facebook documentation, right? Yeah, sure. First of all, Facebook has a giant code base. It's mm-hmm. like there is a ton of products, some of them internal, some of them are like for advertisers. So you as a user, for example, might not really face them, but they exist and there's a ton of code there. And nobody's going to rewrite it just for the sake of rewriting it. There's that. And then there's, so Facebook uh, has a really large scale, uh, even like on the client-side applications, there's a ton of data. These are very complex dependencies, very complex uh, entities that reference each other and so on. And so Relay is probably a better fit for uh, Facebook in many cases. And when they have only local data, they sometimes, like they're trying Redux on some small projects. But there are some problems like 
One of the problems is that, again, they have existing complicated code bases that rely on flux patterns, such as wait for dependencies between stores. And it can get tricky to refactor to Redux unless you're writing in Redux first. So this is one thing. And uh, another thing is that they do a lot of dynamic code loading. And this is actually like an unsolved problem both with Flux and Redux. So Redux doesn't really help solve it. Uh, if uh, some dynamically loaded store or reducer misses some actions that happened before it was loaded, uh, it's going to be in an inconsistent state. So these are they have like bigger problems than choosing the flavor of flux button, I guess. But they do use it uh, occasionally. Hey Dan, uh, so uh, you mentioned Relay. Um, how much did Redux influence any part of Relay, or are there any similarities there? I don't think I don't think there there are any similarities now, uh, and I don't think it has influenced really in any way at this point. In the future, it's not so clear, and I don't really know. Uh, you probably want to invite somebody like Joseph Ona <laughs> to tell you about this, but I know that Relay team is experimenting with different kinds of like specifying local mutations, and this is definitely planned, and it may. Since uh, Facebook is using Flux a lot and Redux a little, uh, it may make sense that some kind of local mutations are also expressed as actions. And maybe some kind of GraphQL schema can be described together with some reducers. But again, this is very theoretical. I don't really work on this. uh, And I don't know if anybody's working on it right now. But yeah, it's just a space to watch. I'm sure we'll have some exciting solutions like in a year year and a half and I know there's some stuff uh, like in ClojureScript land, there is Omnext, which people often compare to Relay. I can't really g- give a good answer here. <laughs> in the Meteor community, a lot of people weren't so into React in the beginning. And that's because Meteor had shipped their own like, front-end framework that was based on templates. It was called Blaze. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in our recent versions where we're finally using uh, like ES6 modules and stuff, we were very behind for a little bit, uh, which was one of the biggest complaints about Meteor was there was no, there was no sense of, of modules. And you'd have to solve these lo- load order dependencies by using uh, global namespaces under a weird alphabetical like ordering of variables, and it would be super weird. It's very weird. And anyone outside the, re- uh, the React community or uh, even in the broader JS community would look in and be like, that's so weird, we use Webpack, and uh, we've been doing this for, for months without, without, without this, like, uh, this need for like, craziness. Just last month is when we got that release where now there's, these, there's, there's native NPM install, like things that most developers already have. And with that came React, and that came a huge surge of people wanting to go to React because all the tooling and stuff really integrated well with the Meteor build tool. So that's one thing that Meteor has uh, going for it is it manages the whole build process of your application along with, you know, the package manager and stuff like that. So it allows people to, like, just start, go without having to worry with all the tooling overhead. So all these people are getting into React, and now there's a huge debate about state management. Some people want to use the Meteor state management and, it's its way of doing reactive state. Other people like myself have been going, hey, go Redux way because most, it's, you know, there's a huge following. 
and it plays really nice with Meteor apps. But it's, it's crazy to see that most people say in the Meteor community what they don't like about Redux is the overhead of managing easy state. And I was wondering if you could touch on that. Like, have you heard that from people before? That it's so much work to do something very simple, but it's the same amount of work to do something hard? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd say that, like with any tool, you need the balance. <laughs> it's especially important in cases when, like for, for Redux, I started marketing it as something for people who already know Flux and who already know its weaknesses and its strengths. They know what works well and what doesn't work well. But as a tool explodes in popularity, what happens is that people people try to solve all the kinds of problems with it that it doesn't actually solve or isn't supposed to solve or doesn't solve well. We recently added uh, a good section on the website, uh, frequently asked questions. So there's a bunch of stuff there that people used to ask us for like the past six months. I think it documents some some of these uh, answers like when do you want to uh, put something in local state, for example, as opposed to global state? Well, the answer is simple. If it takes a lot of work to put something to global state, don't do it. Uh, yeah. Put it in local state. If you then find out that it's a lot of work to maintain it in the local state, put it into global state. So this is really only solved by case-by-case basis. Uh, you look at like how much code I have to write either way and how I expect this code to evolve. Like, Is this a button, like a drop-down? And in this case, this trait is not going to be uh, used anywhere else in the app. So why would you bother to like move it to Redux? But on the other hand, like if this is a cached list of fetched, uh, fetched data and you know that you have the same data on a different page and you know that if you want to press back, you want it to immediately load, so you want it to be cached and you want it to be paginated and you want there to be optimistic mutations. And in this case, probably putting it to, into the component local state is not such a great idea, although it could work as well if you use some kind of caching on the data fetching side. So if you use something like data loader to uh, like make fake uh, uh, something that looks like Ajax request but is actually fulfilled from the cache, maybe you don't need Redux. But if you need local mutations, this is where it gets complicated. Yeah, so, it, gets, it gets complicated and like, see, I'm all, I agree with everything you just said. Like you have to make that decision on a case-to-case basis because not all state is equal. Yeah. application. But the issue is when people are getting into a tool or maybe they just want to move, they want to have a really high productivity, they don't want to make that choice. They just want to know that they can do the same thing over and over again and achieve a lot of productivity. But with the thing with Redux and any state management, you have to think about, you want you to think, right? You have to think and you have to be like, well, what, what is this actually representing in the application? But people... Yeah. I feel like that's one of the biggest things about learning Redux is the fact that you you can't kind of like just put it in cruise control and continue to do the same pattern that is recommended and achieve yeah. the same result for everything. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty low level in this uh, in this regard. And uh, there's a great post by Amjad. I think it's called Overcoming Intuition in Programming. So this is something I recommend uh, to read. It's a great post about how libraries have the positive space, the space of the problems that they solve, and the negative space, which is everything else. And the problem with learning a new library is that you don't know what is in the negative space. 
And so you might assume that the problem that the library has like an intuitive way to solve something that it doesn't actually have. And you need to, I think experience is knowing where negative space of each library is and knowing when you have to be in the cruise control mode, when you just do the thing, whatever, you don't think much. And when we have to switch to, hey, I, I, I need to take a look at the whole picture. Does it make sense? Am I doing the right thing? So this is the kind of thing that comes with experience, I think. The state confusion gets even even more complex as people are mixing. They're, they're doing isomorphic apps where they're mixing a lot of like server logic with their client logic. And this whole state decision becomes a huge hassle when, especially like here's an example, like in our Meteor apps, Meteor ships something called Mini Mongo. It's a local state collection purely for server-side state. So anything I get from the server will be stored here. And then, then like, you have your Redux store, right? And you have all your client-side state. And to me, I think that's a great separation. If you have a really complex app, it's nice to separate. Like, okay, here's all the stuff from the server. Here's from the client. But a lot of, uh, a lot of people are really wanting a way to just manage them both in one store. Right? And you can do that today by using like, you know, asynchronous actions and stuff like that. But people want, like, especially for us who they're already getting the server-side state in some cache, they want to mix everything together into you know, just one store. What do you think about that? Because uh, I think people in the Redux Relay community also like to have some type of connection between Relay and Redux or use both of them at the same time. So I think it's a very it's a close parable right there. What, what's your opinion on uh, server-side state and client-side state and how they interact? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, again, I don't think I have a good answer. This is like... This is one of the cases that I hope some library will solve, uh, either Relay or uh, some smaller part of Relay uh, that is going to be extracted from it or something. But in Redux, for example, you often want to to keep the server fetch data uh, together with the client-side data just because you want to keep the same paradigm. Uh, like, for example, if you have opt- optimistic mutations and you want to insert something into the list, but then send a request, and if it fails, to remove it again or merge with the new entities that have been fetched. So if you want this kind of granular control over what is in your state, you want to write some reducers for this, and at this point, you want to use a Redux for this. On the, on the other hand, if there is a tool that completely automates pagination, optimistic updates, and this kind of stuff, it can probably live in a separate cache. But you also uh, often want to have some client data attached to server data. Like, for example, if there is a post and you're editing it, so you have a draft attached uh, that is logically attached to this post you're editing, and if you want to save, you want, you want it to appear immediately as it's saved. So this is one of the cases where kind of enforcing a separation between them doesn't really work because it's client-side state, but it reflects on the server data. So, yeah, I think some kind of combined approach uh, would work best, but I'm not aware of any. Uh, Again, maybe Omnext has it, but I'm bad at ClojureScript, so I can't really say. So, yeah, I have to do a plug now for uh, this thing that Meteor is building. It's called Apollo. And I Mm -hmm. think I uh, sent you a ticket about some help we needed, but the the goal for the Apollo project is to have a, uh, a GraphQL server in between your app 
and any backend, right? So essentially, we can you can use state from different data sources, and you can manage them cleanly through GraphQL. And the driving state store for that is actually Redux, right? So at the end of the day, everything is dumping into Redux under a certain reducer name. For example, Apollo is that the actual reducer name with as the queries change, it dumps into the Redux store under that reducer. Mm-hmm. So you can see that exactly what you said, you are combining the client-side state and the, the server-side state together. And it's a lot easier than REST because, you know, REST is always a pain with setting up those requests and dumping them in. Having a clear GraphQL schema and resolving those is perfect. And especially if they go into the Redux store, you can, you can your public API for the client is always going to be the same. And which is great, even if you're dealing with the server-side state or some client-side state, it's the best. It's yeah. The best thing. But I always felt it was really wonky having to do asynchronous requests only to uh, have some optimistic requests and then if it failed I would have to manage them that itself, you know. And uh, even even with middleware, like when you're doing an asynchronous request, you can do the middleware for like maybe a promise or something. Managing the state of a request, it also feels a little weird because why should I manage the state? Like shouldn't the request know that it's initialized? loading yeah, and resolve. Definitely. So those definitely. are the things that I feel that people say that there's a lot of overhead to Redux. And I have to agree with them, even though I love it. I have to agree that there is a lot of overhead, but I feel like predictability is better than magic. And if you can write predictable code, you'll never have bugs. Or hopefully you'll never have bugs, you know? So I think The most that, important part is that if you have bugs, you need to have a simple procedure to find like where exactly the bug happens. This yeah. is one one of the core like philosophies of Redux that you can write buggy code, but at least you know where it is. You mentioned Ohm next, and I'm kind of curious. Like, do you pay attention to Cycle and Elm and Ohm and other types of frameworks and libraries that seem to be you know they're all kind of driving at the same idea of immutability, encapsulation, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm trying to pay some attention. I haven't been very good at this lately because I'm just swamped with work. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Elm is pretty inspiring. Uh, I think it's... I I don't have a use case for it. So it, it's hard for me to evaluate tech when I don't have a use case for it. And right now, uh, I'm not writing any apps, so I'm just working on the library. So it's hard for me to evaluate stuff. Uh, Elm is, is pretty inspiring. It's cool that they uh, they have some kind of React Native thing to Elm Native UI or something like this. I'm not sure. It's a little bit hard for me to understand completely functional programs. For example, Elm Architecture, it inspired Redux in some ways. The whole like idea of reducers is pretty much what Elm does with update functions. Actually, the first version of Redux didn't have that, so I didn't understand producer composition when I uh, published the first versions of Redux. And it was actually Andrew Clark uh, who came up with this idea, hey, like you don't need many stores, here's one store, and we're going to call functions. Uh, so Redux doesn't have to take care of that, it's just function invocation. Elm is pretty inspiring, but on the other hand, it means that uh, you have to li- write a lot of code uh, that deals uh, with like street propagation because of the purity. So at least this is my opinion. Like maybe I don't understand it well, but uh, in the examples I saw, anytime you want to compose a stateful child inside a parent, 
you need to actually write the code to propagate the state inside the child to have these updates propagate uh, as expressed in the parent state. And for example, in React, this is always uh, an implementation detail of the component because a React component can be stateful. Uh, and it's uh, it's an implementation detail. So this is a big difference, and I think it speaks to React's popularity that it's important to be able to nest uh, stateful things into stateless things and not have to think about it uh, and not have to write any wiring code. And as for Cycle, again, it's a very nice, it looks uh, as a very nice uh, API and a very nice pattern. I'm not sure I haven't used it, so I'm not, I can't speak about performance or how well it encapsulates components or how easy it is to refactor or not, so I can't really say anything about this. So what is important for me in React and why i inspired by React and why I want to work on React is because it, it provides the glue between components. And I find it actually pretty important for, like, for the future directions of React is that you never in React you don't you don't write the glue code between uh, parent and child to make them work together. You just express that parent contains a child, which means that React has a lot of freedom in how it treats uh, your components. For example, at some point it may introduce an optimization that delays rendering of child components to things that are not on the screen, as an example. And because you don't write the wiring code, you just describe what your component looks like, you don't actually depend on whether the child is rendered or not at this time. On the other hand, if you write explicit code saying like, uh, map this observable of VDOM to uh, like this function and then uh, combine their results into another observable or whatever, you write this code so you have full control over it. But on the other hand, the framework doesn't have as much control. So it can't really do some optimizations that would be nice to do. But this is very theoretical. Uh, I'm not trying to batch cycle or anything. It's possible that it's possible to like, have the same kind of component abstraction in cycle so that cycle have this, has this kind of control. And maybe the use cases are different enough that this just doesn't matter in cycle. And maybe we won't uh, succeed with like incremental reconciliation in React either. So this is just something that's been on my mind about those frameworks. And this is what I like about React is that it has control. So we got a question from the community here. This one comes from Max, and he, Max Sadman. And he basically wants to know if there's uh, any plan to split React into more mini libraries. So quasi recently, you know, like React DOM was broken out, right, from the main React library. So I think one of his concerns was, is, is it going to be possible in the future to like split off React SVG or one of those other libraries just to, to reduce file size? So uh, I understand the concerns <laughs> about the file size. So the file, uh, React file size has been like, uh, people have been talking about it for a while. It's a valid concern in a way if you compare like libraries uh, like Preact, for example, that count like two kilobytes or something and claim to implement pretty much the same API. But on the other hand, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, there's a lot of edge cases that React handles uh, that some of these libraries don't handle. And, and it gets very tricky because implementation details change all the time. So it's tricky to point out like the exact list of, uh, of these edge cases. I think we plan to look at it again after uh, we uh, change our build process. So right now, our build process is that we just shape a common JS, uh, common JS modules. Uh, 
But this means that people sometimes depend on internal internal modules that get renamed or whatever. So we want to expose fled bundles for specific renters, like you have a React.js compiled to a single file uh, that without these browser file definitions, just like like Closure Compiler does, I think. So we want to experiment th- with these optimizations that are able to remove some of the dead code uh, depending on the renderer. Another thing that's important is that React doesn't use some of the assumptions like it doesn't use some of the things that it can use in the future right now, and cutting them uh, right now would not probably be a good idea. And an example of that is this synthetic event system. So some people say that, hey, synthetic event system is huge. Let's just remove it from React, right? Let's just like ship React without it and let people use it as a modular version of React. But the problem is, first of all, there's React Native, and it's important that we support React Native as well. And it's good to have a common abstraction there uh, because we want to move uh, the core forward and not just the Tom part. But another part is imagine that React implements optimizations that let React take care of positioning your children. For example, rather than have a bunch of divs, a bunch of like deeply nested divs with Flexbox layout that exist only for layout, what if we let React, what if we had inline styles, for example? And what if we let React position uh, specific divs on the page absolutely, uh, kind of like React Native does, based on the layout information? But in this case, the browser event system would not be exactly correct because it wouldn't bubble through the same tree because some of the, uh, the tree would not look the same. It would be up to React. So it's important that we keep this system so that the user code can stay the same, but React can render components in a smarter way. And a lot of this is like targeted at the future, and this is not something that this is not something that we're currently working on. But we may be working on this in a year, and we don't want to lose that opportunity. And also, uh, I get that some people want to have like more modular libraries, but on the other hand, a ton of people want to have a complete environment. Many people want actually. The, the task of React, React is not a virtual DOM library. It's not a like DOM different engine or whatever. It's a library for building composable UIs. And user interface is this rectangle on the screen, a bunch of rectangles on the screen, which means that probably handling touches and clicks in a uniform way, having gestures, but having gestures play well with animations, having a priority scheduling for important updates versus low priority updates, all of these things are concerns of a UI library. So it may not actually be the case that we want to like make it smaller. Uh, we may actually want to make it larger. Uh, but hey, 30 kilobytes is less than most images on, on the page. So it's not such a big deal. But of course, we take it seriously. And uh, if we increase the uh, file size, we want to understand why we're doing it and what we are giving you what kind of code you don't have to write in your app uh, as a benefit. That's a very detailed answer. Thank you. Uh, and you mentioned inline styles. So what's your take on uh, inline styles versus something like, CS, like React CSS modules or, or some other solution? When people say inline styles, <laughs> they often mean two different things. One of the uh, things they might mean is the declaration is when you specify things as JavaScript code, uh, and something happens to them. 
And another thing is actually using inline styles as an implementation detail that is setting uh, things on the style object uh, as, as opposed to uh, setting CSS class names. These are two different things. And I think that defining styles in JavaScript is superior, but this is just my opinion. Uh, I think that it helps to like uh, have access to constants and be able to pass these uh, as props to the children component if, if necessary, and to be able to use like this spread operator and to have conditions and saying like, hey, if hovered, then apply these styles. So I think th this is pretty neat in terms of declaration. In terms of what it actually compiles down to, uh, I'm not so sure. So this this is something that people experiment with. And there are very tricky um, problems to solve, like how do you make this usable uh, with the DevTools? Because it's so hard to tweak uh, like 50 components that each uh, define their own inline styles. This is actually one, one of the reasons I'm excited about hotter loading is that I think we move towards this stage where just DevTools, tweaking things in DevTools is not gonna cut it. And tweaking things in the editor is much more comfortable. But in any case, this is a different thing, and it needs more experimentation. We're experimenting with this uh, at Facebook internally. So I don't, I don't know if you read uh, the React core notes. Uh, we started publishing them again. There is a repo in React.js org called, called core notes. These are meeting notes from our team meetings. We have uh, a little bit of information about like Christopher. Uh, Christopher Shadow is experimenting with inline styles at Facebook, but I only mean the declaration side, and this is currently very tied to Facebook Infra, so this is not something that is useful for open source at all. But anyway, we have experimentation going on if, like, what if we define styles in JavaScript but compile them to CSS that our Facebook internal asset pipeline expects? And if we do that, we can start experimenting with uh, targeting inline styles instead of CSS class names at some point and see if it works out for our major products and see if, if it works well for like developer experience and the performance and all the other concerns. And if we can more, make it work well, then we'll probably just say that, hey, using inline styles is a good idea. But right now we don't know. I have a couple of Redux like internals questions. One thing I really like about Redux is the middleware. I think middleware is a lot of, would you say that middleware is the place to do more like uh, additional things in between, in between your dispatches. Like for me, we use action creators a lot for purely for business logic, where we're going to do business logic, we're going to do validations, we'll do some checks, we'll do these things, blah blah blah, and then we'll 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 send it off to the store and it'll be great, um, or use a thunk or whatever. But what about middleware? Like, ha have you seen a lot of middleware packages come out in the npm sphere to handle? Kind of some of the things that a thunk would handle, like asynchronous calls like that, like where do you see the future of middleware? I think that's probably one of the biggest and low, most low-key parts about Redux that uh, people don't really touch on, right? Originally, the idea of middleware came from, so it's inspired by like server-side frameworks like Express Core, and a lot of that came from I didn't want to uh, enforce any kind of specific async pattern because I felt that Redux doesn't really solve this problem. And so we need to make it pluggable and let people come up with whatever they want. 
And at the time, the most popular Flux, Flux library, I think one of the most popular Flux libraries was Flamux by Andrew Clark. And so Flamux handled promises by default. So it had the built-in uh, support for promises. But I wanted to have this kind of, uh, like being able to conditionally dispatch, uh, like what Redux Tonk became. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't decide if I wanted to go one way or another. So we had this concept of middleware and uh, the, uh, a lot of the API decisions and stuff like that. Uh, so like it's just extensible was made by Andrew. So uh, I'm very grateful to him. Like my favorite middleware is probably Redux Tonk because it's just like, it's so silly and <laughs> it's pretty powerful that I like it. If I was looking at like third party middleware, I think there are some, great things in the community. My favorite simple middleware is Redux Analytics uh, by uh, Mark Dalgaish. You just specify like which actions, how you want the actions to be tracked by your analytics backend, which is exactly the use case for middleware. Like you have the central hub that all your things, uh, all your actions flow through and you can log them. Like this is awesome. You don't have to write any analytics crappy code in your app. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's one thing. Another, my favorite is Redux Logger, which is super simple. Like if you don't want something like Redux DevTools, you just want a simple solution. It's very handy. You just plug Redux Logger and you see uh, state before the action, the action itself, and state after the action. And if the state is screwed up, you just scroll up and see, hey, this action, uh, this action screwed up this size of state. And then you know which size of state, so you can find the reducer for it, and you know exactly where the mistake is. So this is very handy. And my favorite example of like really complex middleware is Redux Saga. So yeah. this yeah. is just a crazy effort. Uh, when I first looked at it, I was like, what the hell is going on? I don't understand these uh, star functions. So uh, I learned generators because of it. And it turned out that generators are awesome and they make tasting so much easier compared to Redux Tonk or like other asynchronous middleware because these sagas just emit descriptions of what's about to happen. So you can test these descriptions for equality and like this is it. When you want some kind of complicated async flow like authorization flow, when you have the token that can expire, but on the other hand, you want to refresh it once in a while, blah, 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 blah. It's very hard to express uh, without some kind of DSL. And I think Redux Saga provides uh, an excellent DSL for these kind of things. Uh, I remember that for a while, there was this big hype around Redux Simple Router. And now we're getting into routing. And like changing state via routing is, off, is kind of like a no-brainer, right? Um, but let's say, you, <laughs> no, you would think, you would think, right? You would yeah. Think. But it's actually not. And like... <laughs> You have these people that have their existing router, whatever it may be, and are now trying to figure out, well, how I kind of want to, you know, reset the state when this route changes. And so what is the simple router and where is Redux in the term in the in the big router war that's going on? As people first try to like build apps with Redux, they try to go completely into the Redux direction and as my manager, uh, Tom, likes to say that any technology is like uh, this oscillating uh, thing, you know, like you go into one direction, then you overcorrect and go into the uh, opposite direction, and eventually you kind of find the uh, optimum. 
And so I think this is what happened both with like local state. So people tried to not to use local state at all. And then it turned out that this is not a good idea. And you want to mix both. And it's the same with routing that at first people tried to like go deep into the routing, like try to do it completely through Redux. And it turned out that maybe this is not a good idea because uh, at least with the React, the most popular option is React Router. And it's inherently tied to AI. And some people say this is a bad thing, but like personally, I've only had good experiences with it. And I think routing is kind of tied to UI because, mm-hmm. you know, it shows different UI <laughs> depending on uh, yeah. uh, where you are. And so uh, when we're dealing with UI, some of the stuff is not so realizable, like uh, the current component. And in Redux, the rule of thumb is that if something is not so realizable, it should not be part of the street. I think the first solution was something called... Uh, the naming was super confusing. We had Redux Router, which was later renamed to Redux Router React, and then we had Redux Simple Router by uh, by uh, by James Long, who was tired of like all this complexity, which later got renamed to React Redux Router because it's uh, no React Router Redux. Is that's what most people Google, and we wanted to come uh, up high in the rankings. So the thing is, it's not actually tied to React Router. It's just using history under the hood. But since most people are going to Google React Router and Redux, we want it to be high because it's the yeah. simple solution. But like to sum it up, you don't need anything to use React Router with Redux. The thing about 2.0 React Router API is that you don't really need anything. You just use React Router directly. Uh, it works well with Redux. You don't need anything else. But uh, like, if you want to, you can add hooks like on enter, dispatch actions if you want. But uh, normally, you can just use them together without worrying too much. In case if you use something like Redux DevTools or if you use uh, the capabilities of Redux, like being able to record all the user session as actions and later replay on a, on a different computer, in this case, you want uh, the URL bar to be in sync so this is the only use case where you actually want to uh, use React Router Redux. But well, in most cases, you just don't need it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for answering that question. I think a lot of people now will have uh, some kind of guidance there. Routing is always like those things that people spend a lot of time on. You know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. So. You can contribute to the docs. Oh, man, I'd love to. <laughs> kind of changing gears here. The, you've been doing an experiment lately where you've uh, been streaming on Twitch, the, like the stuff that you're working on on React. How's that been going and has there been a positive response so far? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I just, I just stream. <laughs> uh, I think some people have, been, uh, have liked it, which I'm grateful for. But other than that, it's just like I use it as a tool to concentrate because if I really need to get into something deeply and I don't want to get distracted by anything and I want to force myself to turn off all the notifications and to not go into social media and so on, I just need to stream my screen. <laughs> so it's been positive for me. And I think it might, like some people express that uh, it's useful just to see somebody working through and struggling like with a new code base 
which uh, which is what I'm doing because I'm new to React code base. So there's a lot of surprising stuff for me over there. And uh, since it's like test driven development, because uh, I know I need to. I need to actually test my changes. This is a framework, not an app. Like an app, you can probably slack off sometimes, but in library, you can't. It has some kind of like good workflow vibe when you start and everything is red and nothing is working. And as you uh, walk through it and then get it to work and then refactor it, it gives a nice sense of accomplishment. And I think people enjoy watching that too. But yeah, I definitely plan to do, do that in the future as well. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I really like it myself. Like I, I think back to the days of like when I first learned JavaScript, like I knew a little bit of JavaScript and like could use jQuery back in like 2010, 2011, but I, I'd mostly focus on the back end with Ruby. And I, I came to a Ruby shop that was like completely dedicated to pair programming. It was really an amazing way to learn just because like what you were talking about, like watching someone think through how they were writing code and like being able to ask those questions like as they were doing it was a pretty amazing experience. So I think for like developers just getting started, this is actually a really awesome tool for them to, I mean, it may seem boring to someone that's been doing JavaScript for, you know, six years, but at the same time, like, you know, someone who's just getting started, it's really awesome to kind of see how people think through these. And I think you, you tweeted the other day, like experience is just knowing where to put the console.log. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. You know, like I just, I have an intuition of where I think something may be broken and you know, half the time I'm right, half the time I'm wrong, but the times that I am right, like it leads to me getting something fixed faster. Uh, and that's just, I think experience over time. Not necessarily yeah, totally. Because smarter. <laughs> like beginners often think that, experienced developers don't make mistakes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I count as an experienced developer. Like I've been programming JavaScript for a couple of years, maybe three years. I found that for myself, I make just as many mistakes as I used to, but I have a pretty good intuition of like which edge cases are going to fail. So I just had tests for those and I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is pretty much what I thought. And it also helps to kind of get a sense for one of the most complex things about learning to program is overcoming this feeling that, oh, I'm not, like, this is magic. I'm not going to figure it, figure it out. Like, there is a bug, and I don't know, maybe it's a compiler bug, and this happens. Like, with Bubble, it happens. Uh, I mean, I love Bubble, uh, but uh, it, it's just fun to actually have compiler bugs sometimes. <laughs> what I found is that um, as a beginner, you often think, there is an issue and I'm just not going to uh, get down to the root of it. It's just too complicated. But what you actually need to do is just calm down, relax, and just go one by one, verify your assumptions, go through every bit uh, of where it's likely to fail and you're going to find it. It just yeah. takes patience. Yeah, and, I would agree with that. It's feeling it's confident. A time commitment, right? Like, And people are scared it's going to be complicated, but really it's just like, taking the time to trace something all the way to the source. And, you know, I think with, with something like Meteor, it sometimes feels complicated because there's this like big uh, framework of a bunch of libraries glued together. But, you know, at the end of the day, like you can pick it apart and find that it's really just a bunch of packages and like you can dive through it and figure out what yeah. is and, and even run it locally and kind of put debugger statements or console logs and, you know, 
in the right spot and you'll eventually find the problem. Yeah, and I think in the Redux, uh, this was also one of my like goals with it is that I wanted the debug experience to actually make some sense. Uh, so uh, in Flux, debugging can be complicated because of the dependencies between the stores, so you always go back to the dispatch logic uh, inside of Wait4, and it's like a tricky for loop there. Uh, but in Redux, it's just like, for each listener, just call the listener, and it's like uh, you have the previous state, and here goes your reducer function. And I really wanted to make this step-through experience uh, really simple to understand, because like most of the time, the bugs are in your code base. <laughs> yeah. As you get more experience in developing, your your like preference for having good tooling gets more important. Like as you get more experience, you want better tools because you don't want to waste time on the stuff you wasted time on your first year in in the job. Yeah. And I think that's what Redux came in really, really nicely is because it came with that that developer tool set in mind. You should have tools to debug this, which we previously didn't have. You shouldn't yeah. actually be doing a bunch of console logs to test Redux state at all. You should not mm-hmm. be. You, know, you have the logger, and or we can take inspiration from this uh, this library, and I, you can see that especially with the stuff I'm working on with the Apollo project. It's it's tool focused development. Like we are building stuff so it can have tools for you, because in the media community previously there were no tools to observe, especially reactive data. Reactive data is the worst because first it is undefined, then it is then it is complete, right? There's two states. There's always loading, yeah. false, and true. And yeah. if you don't have that tooling to understand what exactly is going to happen, then you don't know what guards to put in your application. You don't know how to reason about it, and you don't know how to explain it to someone else who may be working on it. So I think, I think I, I know, I'll give props to you for that because before that, I, I didn't see a lot of tool-driven uh, products out there. Now, now there's like Vue.js, which I think took a lot of inspiration from the, like how Redux was built in now is at 2.0. It has a bunch of features. It has tooling. It has a Redux implementation. It has all this stuff. So I think that kind of inspired a role for newer yeah, libraries. I, I agree. I'm very, uh, I'm very happy to see this. Uh, like I don't really care if you, people use Redux as long as uh, like so, some of these ideas and uh, the, this focus on not letting on making it hackable like it stays. For example, like MobX is completely different from Redux uh, in how it's implemented, but it's awesome that it also exposes these hooks. So uh, there is uh, like a debugger for MobX that highlights the changed components. This is awesome stuff. Uh, I'm very glad that it's happening. Another important part is that uh, often these uh, like these developer hooks are an afterthought, and they're often exposed in such a way that it's hard to hack on the tools. So, for example, you might have like a Flux library that has a Chrome extension uh, for inspecting state, but like, is anybody going to contribute to this Chrome extension? Probably not, because it's just so hard to contribute to a Chrome extension. It's just such a mess, and this is like the, this is how they get stale, and there is not enough innovation. So, what I wanted to do with Redux DevTools, and I think it paid off, uh, even though like the default uh, monitor is. Not, uh, not perfect. Out of it, we have uh, React JSON tree, which is a project for showing the tree of data. Uh, it recently got, some, uh, got a new, uh, new maintainer, uh, who's my friend from the previous project. And he uh, made an awesome change where if you have a bunch of items, more than like 100 items uh, in the list, it shows them uh, kind of like Chrome uh, just 
uh, in the buckets. So you see like uh, 0 to 100 and 100 to 200 and so on. So if you have a large list of data, it's still easy to find uh, the right thing in the tree. And he also built uh, a custom, uh, a different monitor that shows the difference between the states. So you can see uh, how this state changed during this action exactly, like which paths in the state uh, were changed with a Git-like interface. So this is amazing, and it's possible because uh, Redux DevTools is implemented as a React component. And the main point was that, yeah, there is a Chrome extension, like it was contributed later, it's awesome, but it's hackable. So you can just have DevTools on the side and then you can write a custom monitor that makes sense for your application. And so other people, like there is a chart monitor that shows your state as a graph and it animates when new, uh, when new nodes are added. And this is useful for like really complicated state trees. Uh, but you can switch that to any other kind of monitor that makes sense for your application. And I hope that future libraries also keep the tools hackable and make it easy to you know, make your own small tool that connects to this library uh, and gets this information. And this is also what I'm working on React right now, is helping to advance this uh, DevTool API we're adding. It's still internal, uh, but it's already kind of possible to use if you require the right module, but don't do that, I, I didn't say it. But anyway, it's going to be official at some point, and it's going to drive uh, both our internal add-ons, like Perf, for example, the new React Perf is using the new debug tools, and the new uh, the Chrome extension is going to start using these debug tools. And it will be possible to write your own, uh, like track React lifecycle, see when components are mounted, updated, unmounted. You can measure what time it takes to do that uh, and like build visualizations on top of the components, heat maps, whatever. We want this to be hackable. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about learning React. Like I've only been using it since uh, end of December, early January, but it was super easy to pick up because those dev tools were there. And I think uh, that's, that's going to be even, even more awesome once you get a perf tool in there because... Like people don't realize how hard it can be sometimes to measure like the performance and it's hard to squeeze out uh, like a lot of performance out of something if you're not measuring it well. Like you make assumptions and like you may miss the mark if you're not measuring. So that's pretty awesome to hear. All right. Well, did anyone else have uh, one final question? I just had a comment. (laughs) Go ahead. So making things hackable I think it's going to be like the future of like libraries implementations. And I think the root of that is functional programming is definitely the root of that because passing functions and uh, writing higher level functions is allows you to pretty much do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. <laughs> Even internally at in my company at WorkPop, we build everything as higher order reducers. We build everything as higher order actions that with business logic bound to them because we know that we want a pluggable system. We want to be able to dump a function here, there, and have it be predictable and reliable. And so I think like it's not just for t- dev tools that you want to be hackable. I feel like it's with your your business logic code that exists on the client. I think that should be super hackable too. That any person coming into your code base can be like, oh, I need something like this. Let me use that, and I can build something with it. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I use at my company, I was learn from you, Dan. So I just wanted to say thanks for all that stuff. Thank you. We generally end the show, we stole this from uh, JavaScript Jabber, I guess Ben did, um, with like having a pick of the week. 
So it's just something that doesn't necessarily have to be related to dev. It can be anything you want. Just something that generally is like making your life better or improving your life in some way. And we'll just go around and, and everyone can mention something. Cool. I'm going to start this time. <laughs> uh, so over the weekend, I went to uh, this place in, uh, so I'm from DC. Uh, I went to this place called Tech Shop. They have multiple locations across the country. Uh, but it's basically like a place where you go and they have a bunch of tools. Like they have woodworking tools, they have 3D printers, laser cutters, uh, they have like kilns. Basically, they have like fancy sewing machines, all sorts of crazy stuff. And you can go and you take classes and they teach you how to use this stuff. And then you get a membership. And so once you teach the class, you can go and just make a bunch of stuff. So I took my daughters, uh, my daughters there, and they have like young. They have like a steam summer camp programs and stuff. So they gave me a tour. It was super awesome. And uh, I'm like really excited to, to do some of those classes with my daughters. So shout out to tech shop. So mine will be tech related Uh, for anyone who wants to use any database layer in their application. You should check out Apollo stack uh, docs.apollostack.com. We integrate with Redux, Angular, React, that's that. <laughs> Paul's tight. Paul's tight. Nice. Yeah, so I'm also doing a shameless plug. <laughs> uh, I've been working on something on the weekends, um, in the past few weekends. Uh, it's called React Hold Auto 3. We skipped the version 2. <laughs> so um, it's been a long time coming. I've learned a lot about like how to implement how to load in React. I had a few dead ends. I'm deprecating the React Transform project. And of course, I'm deprecating the old version of React Holder. So I suggest uh, you to check out, um, there is a pull request on React Hot Boilerplate repo that shows the demo of React Holder 3. Uh, I've released beta one yesterday. It's fairly stable. It's solved a lot of bugs. I encourage you to check it out and try it if you use something like React Holder 1.x or Bevel plugin React Transform. Check out React Auto 3 instead and give me feedback. Thanks. Yeah, so I don't know. Mine will be a weird one. So I podcast a lot. I just got a new light, uh, which is helping light up the room. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's awesome. Like we were talking about tooling. Like I spend a lot of time recording. So uh, I've got a new mic recently and uh, a new light. And I've even got a new... DSLR for recording videos too, as I'm starting to do more tutorials on YouTube. So I would say like, if you can invest in your tooling, like even if it ends up being a computer or a monitor or something, like it's definitely worth, worth doing. So you spend a lot of time with it. All right, Dan. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It was really awesome. You dropped quite a bit of knowledge on us. So we appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks, Dan. Yeah, so, uh, and for anyone that's listening, a big thanks to uh, DigitalOcean, sponsor of the show. They, uh, they do an awesome job uh, with hosting if you're looking for it. So DigitalOcean.com, I believe. <laughs> I should know that. As always, uh, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Meteor Club. 10 bucks a month, you can get into our Slack chat room, which is pretty awesome. And uh, I think we're maybe talking about having... Uh, one of the core GraphQL guys on next. So that should be interesting. Um, So stay tuned for that. All right. See you guys later. Bye. Bye. 
has been a Space Dojo production. You can find out more information about Space Dojo at spacedojo.com. It's easy to join the mailing list and stay in the loop. That's S-P-A-C-E-D-O-J-O dot com. 